Welcome to Addressing Alaskans, where we feature community conversations around South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel throughout our community and listen to local groups discuss what matters to them. Today on Addressing Alaskans, 10 years later, looking back at China and the Pacific. Good afternoon, I'm Ammon Swenson. Today's show features retired Air Force General Howie Chandler examining the United States' relationship to China and the Pacific through the lens of his 30-plus years of service. This program was recorded on November 14th at 49th State Brewing Company and was presented by the Alaska World Affairs Council. Chair of the Alaska World Affairs Council, Steve Lindbeck, speaks first. In his 36 years of service, General Chandler had what can only be described as an amazingly distinguished career. His last duty was as Vice Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force, the second highest ranking officer in the Air Force. In that role, he formulated Air Force policy and guidance for more than 680,000 active duty guard, reserve, and civilian personnel serving in the United States and overseas. He was responsible for organizing, training, and equipping Air Force personnel for worldwide operations. There's a lot more than that. If we listed it all here, we wouldn't have much time for him to speak tonight. But a few of the highlights, he was commander of Pacific Air Forces. He was Air Force Headquarters Director of Operations. He was commander of the Alaskan Command and the 11th Air Force. He was Director of Operations for Air Combat Command during Operations Enduring Freedom and Iraqi Freedom. He was NATO Chief of Staff for Allied Air Forces in Southern Europe during the Air War over Serbia and Commander of the 56th Fighter Wing, which is the Air Force's largest fighter wing. He served overseas in Japan, Saudi Arabia, and Italy. He was a career fighter pilot and General Chandler had more than 3,900 hours of flying time in fighter aircraft. Following his military service, General Chandler was a consultant or executive for several important domestic companies, among them Washington Mutual, Pratt & Whitney, and the law firm of Baker, Donaldson, Behrman, Caldwell, and Berkowitz in Washington, DC. This July 2019, he transitioned to be an independent contractor with Baker Donaldson working with many of the same clients he advised over the previous four years. He's also an advisor to the Bethel Native Corporation here in Alaska, and a proud member and supporter of the Alaska World Affairs Council. I think what all this means is that General Howie Chandler is not the kind of guy who relaxes all that much in retirement, and we're all better off for it. So please join me in a big Alaska welcome for General Howie Chandler. Pleasure for me to be here. Now, <clears throat> I know what some of you are thinking. Uh, you're saying, General, if you were so damn good 10 years ago, why did it take Lisa so long to ask you back again? But uh, seriously, Lisa and I have stayed in touch uh, over the years, and it's a, a great opportunity for me to, me to be back. I know it's a number of dicemen in the, in the audience. Uh, I myself uh, am a proud wearer of the, of the dice. So I need to tell you one quick Diceman story. 
Now, we flew the steam-driven F-15E back, back in those days. Uh, it wasn't an F-22, and there were two of us in the airplane to try to maintain control of that beast. Uh, but uh, as the three-star and as the old guy, you can probably understand some of the apprehension when the backseaters were assigned to fly with Howard Chandler. And the, the, the mission they hated the most was the night terrain following, 500 feet, 500 knots, screaming through the Alaska range uh, in the dark. So inevitably, when I went out to do my night flying, most of, the, most of the backseaters were ill that day. And it just so happened that this one particular evening, uh, the young man that was assigned to fly in the back seat was a young Australian lieutenant. Uh, his last name was Southwood, and I figured they probably made him do it because none of the American officers would want to do that. But uh, we briefed four airplanes. Uh, before we ever stepped out to the flight line, we'd already lost two maintenance cancels, so there were two of us left. And then once we got the aircraft started, uh, the flight lead ground aborted. So that left Southwood and me uh, to go out and fly this night mission at night. Uh, great time. Screaming through the screaming through the Alaska darkness, uh, I can tell you it's uh, incredibly exhilarating. At least for me, I'm not sure he felt that way. But by the time we finished the evening, uh, <clears throat> we uh, climbed up to 30,000 feet, well south of Elmendorf, and we're on our way back. And the northern lights are rolling across the the canopy, and I'm having a great time until I look out. And I see that the lights of the city of Anchorage are disappearing below a bank of sea fog, which typically has been known to, to obscure the field. So we start down a shoot to, to shoot the approach. Uh, he's a little nervous by this point because we've checked the weather and he, he's now figured out what's going on. Uh, but as we shoot the approach, uh, in the end, uh, at minimums, there is no runway in front of us, and we're forced to go around and inevitably probably head for Eilson <laughs> that evening. Now, I had my hat and my wallet. Uh, I'm not sure if he had his hat or his wallet uh, to make this trip, but about midway down the runway, we broke out of this fog bank, and it's, it's as clear as can be. So there's three words to get every backseater's attention. And it typically starts with, hey, watch this. And no matter, what, no matter what he or she are doing at the time, you have their undivided attention when you say that. So of course, I said, hey, Southwood, watch this. <clears throat> and uh, we executed a large teardrop maneuver for those of you that don't understand flying. And we, and we landed in the opposite direction and got safely on the ground and taxied back to the chucks. And I watched a young. Australian lieutenant climb out of the airplane and, and literally kiss the ground. And then we, we headed home for the night. But uh, it was a great experience, uh, one that I wish I could repeat today, uh, quite honestly, with you guys. And believe me, these are the, <clears throat> these are the, cream and the, the cream of the crop of the young men and women that this country has to offer that we send out, out there to do uh, the Air Force's business every day. And we need to be very, very proud of them. And I would offer them a round of applause. So now, as Lisa, as Lisa said, uh, a number of people have been across the stage talking about China. Uh, I have not seen all of them, by the way. 
So I'm going to leave it to you as to whether or not I'm telling the truth or not. Uh, and you can also critique because I'm basically going to tell you a lot of what I told you 10 years ago, and I'm going to try to explain why some of it has changed and some of it hasn't changed. But I leave you to be the, be the judge of how well I do. Uh, so as the PACAF commander, I spent a fair amount of time uh, dealing with the Chinese. Uh, again, I'm not the first one to come across the stage to talk about that topic with you, but in this brief comparison, I'd like to first talk a little bit about what has not changed, and then we'll talk a little bit about what has changed. You've probably all heard the statistics. 80% uh, of the world's population, half of the world's surface, and uh, somewhere around 40% of the world's GDP is concentrated in the Pacific theater. Now, for the last 70 years, that's frankly been underpinned by you and I, American taxpayers and American security arrangements and agreements that have allowed the Pacific to develop the way that has developed to this point. Uh, we have Singapore, we have Korea, we now have Vietnam uh, emerging as economic powerhouses. So in the end, what we had uh, was a Pacific that was not at war, yet at the same time, we had a Pacific that really wasn't at peace. Uh, as you know, uh, <clears throat> the North Koreans are a big part of what goes on, and they have a say of what goes on in the Pacific. But the Pacific is, is home to seven of the ten largest militaries in the world, uh, five of eight nuclear powers. And as you look at North Korea, back ten years ago, the North Koreans were making that shift from conventional deterrence, a large armed forces, to a nuclear deterrent. And over the last 10 years, they've managed to do that. And they not only made that shift, but they've made it with ballistic missiles that are continuing to gain a certain element of accuracy that at some point in time will affect the United States. And I think we all understand that. And I know people are working particularly hard on that problem. But the Pacific is also home to five of seven of the United States defense treaties, plus uh, the Taiwan Relations Act. So if you look at how deeply we're embedded in the Pacific, uh, we've actually guaranteed the security of not the entire region, but we've actually guaranteed the security of some very specific nations. Uh, Japan, the Philippines, South Korea, uh, to name just three that are very, very important. Now, uh, most of what I'm talking about came from a 2007 National Air and Space Intelligence Center unclassified document that was entitled uh, connecting the dots, and it basically discusses the challenges that are posed by an emerging China in the Pacific. Now, the folks at NASIC, who I put a lot of faith in when I was on active duty and still do, uh, basically described uh, five elements that were national priorities for the Chinese. Now, I'm going to tell you that these elements really haven't changed a lot over the last 10 years. The Chinese hang their hats on three main things, one being economic development, uh, the second being domestic stability, the third being territorial integrity and, or national unity, said another way, and then the last two being Communist Party control and recognition as a great nation. And we won't spend a lot of time there other than just to say those are the foundational things that underpin the first three that we talked about, and I'd like to spend just a little bit of time on each one of those if you'll allow me to do that. In terms of economic development, uh, if you understand the mass migration of people from a, an agrarian society to an urban society in China, 
then you understand why the Chinese economic machine has to continue to produce jobs and continue to produce exportable type things to allow the economy to grow, to in, in fact lift a lot of people out of the society that they're living in and into the middle class. Now, the Chinese themselves have even began to tell people that not all of you are going to have an opportunity to do this, which I think, in my opinion, will create some problems down the road. But you can understand why the Chinese protect their currency uh, and why the current trade developments that we've seen between the United States and China begin to make the Chinese a little bit nervous. Now, at the same time, we need to ask ourselves, I think, how much damage we're willing to do as a nation to the second largest economy on the globe. So is a weakened China a good thing, or is a weakened China a bad thing, uh, as you sit and try to determine security arrangements in the Pacific? Now, as far as domestic stability con uh, is concerned, I think uh, most of us here remember the Tiananmen Square uh, example of 1989, literally where the Communist Chinese almost lost control. In fact, they, same, they came so close to losing control in the Tiananmen Square uh, uh, period uh, that they vowed that, frankly, it would not happen again. Uh, well, today we're watching Hong Kong. Uh, two separate uh, economies, two separate societies, one nation is the way this has been described. Uh, but you can see that they're walking up to that problem a lot more carefully, in my opinion, than they walked up to Tenement Square. Uh, important to them that they maintain control. Uh, and I would tell you that, uh, that they are very adept at using technology uh, to maintain an authoritarian society. Uh, the other side of that coin is uh, I'm not really sure that they're going to be able to main cont maintain control of the technology as we look out into the future. Uh, yes, uh, they're willing to block uh, the internet, and yes, they block Twitter, uh, but at the same time, they're not at all shy about taking on people that perhaps say unflattering things on Twitter. The NBA example recently is a, is a good, good example of that. So in a world where a nation is trying to have their cake and eat it too or have it both ways, uh, I'm going to tell you they're going to have a very difficult time, I think, into the future. Now, territorial integrity uh, is obviously a big deal. Uh, Tibet annexation, uh, which occurred back in the 1950s, and then, and then uh, there was a put down of a, a Tibet rebellion uh, several, uh, I guess, uh, uh, about a decade and a half later, are perfect examples of how important territorial integrity is to the Chinese. Now, when I grew up uh, in the Pentagon on my last tour there as the vice chief, uh, there were two elements, frankly. Uh, there were a group of people that thought that the US and the Chinese were so deeply entwined with each other that not even Taiwan would be able to tear that apart in terms of conflict between the United States and, and China. Now, there was another group of us uh, that frankly thought that Taiwan was important enough to the Chinese that economic issues wouldn't stand in the way of preventing Taiwan separatism. Uh, I think we've seen over the last seven, eight to nine years that uh, Taiwan has the potential to cause major disruption uh, in our relationship with the Chinese. And frankly, uh, 
economic issues would not stop them from trying to maintain that ter territorial integrity again, uh, in my opinion, and we can certainly talk about that later. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans. Today's program is 10 years later, looking back at China and the Pacific with retired Air Force General Howie Chandler. We'll pick back up where we left off. But as we sat there in the Pentagon, I guess the question you had to ask yourself was, how do we define success? Or how do we define success as we deal with the Chinese and whether or not we're doing things correctly and keeping things on track. Uh, I would tell you from at least my experience uh, several years ago and up until the most recent future, uh, the military capabilities of this country and frankly our willingness to use them are one of the things that kept the Chinese uh, continuing to talk to the United States as opposed to continuing as opposed to trying to to basically shove us out of the Pacific in an unceremonious fashion. Uh, they basically, however, started to use what I would, they had started to use back when I was in the Pacific and the vice chief, what I would, what I would call a, a soft power approach. Uh, the, entire, uh, the entire Chinese government focused on areas and when I would go to places in the Pacific, you would see soccer stadiums that had been built by the Chinese. Uh, today, as we look at what's going on in the Pacific, uh, and we look at the islands that have been dredged out of shoals and other things, uh, quite frankly, uh, had I walked into my boss's office uh, back in the old days and said, you know, we need to be very careful because the Chinese are going to go out to a set of these shoals uh, right off the Philippines, by the way, that we used as a bombing range uh, when we when we flew Cope Thunder in the Philippines, and they're gonna build an island there, and they're not only gonna build an island, they're gonna build a runway on that island, and they're gonna be able to militarize that island, and they're going to start to claim sections of the South China Sea as their own. In other words, the second island chain outside of the islands closest to the Chinese mainland was starting to become somewhat of a reality in the, in the South China Sea. Uh, and we watched that develop, uh, quite honestly. And the bad news is we frankly did nothing about it. So that, in my opinion, has continued to embolden our Chinese friends uh, even further. But uh, one example that I guess I would, would talk most about uh, would be the fact that uh, they have continued to make targeted investments to counter some of our best capabilities. And that's where you look at missile systems that are capable of uh, targeting carriers at, at distance, uh, long-range surface-to-air missile systems, uh, space systems that now counter American capabilities in space where we once had a sanctuary, but frankly now we talk about fighting in space and defending in space uh, like uh, we have never had to do before. So, uh, in the end, what you find is the Chinese that are emboldened by some, some things that they've done in the past uh, that have caused them, frankly, to continue to, to work through this particular problem. Uh, for example, there's absolutely no hesitation to steal technology from this country. Uh, we've, we've worked hard at that problem, but not before a great deal of technology had walked out the door, quite frankly, with very few penalties. Uh, 
and the Chinese have really paid no penalties up to this point for that. Uh, the, de the development of an uh, anti-access and area denial capability that was designed to keep the United States at a distance in the Pacific so we couldn't fight up close to the Chinese mainland. Now, uh, that's not a brick wall, by the way. Uh, many people would try to describe it that way. It's more like Swiss cheese, and I think the Chief of Staff of the Air Force today has done a great, has, has, has worked a long way toward describing what he needs to be able to counter those kinds of uh, systems that the Chinese have put together to basically keep us away from the mainland. I, I guess one of the examples that was pretty telling to me was when uh, Secretary Gates visited China, and he visited China twice uh, during his time as the SecDef, and each time the Chinese rolled out a new stealth fighter, at least a stealth fighter from where, from where they sat. And frankly, the response from this country, and it's not because, it's, it's not because uh, Bob Gates was not an intelligent man, I frankly think he got some bad advice in some areas, uh, but at the same time this is happening with Chinese stealth fighters, uh, we're seeing a truncation of the F-22 program in this country, and we've seen a slowdown of the F-35 program. And that was all done with a logical explanation of uh, looking out into the future and the number of stealth fighters that the United States Air Force in this country were programmed to have versus the number of stealth fighters that should exist elsewhere in the world. Well, unfortunately, uh, some of our competitors get a say in what is going on, and they've continued to accelerate stealth programs, or at least stealth their version, uh, while at the same time we've struggled to continue to produce the numbers that this country needs. And what that results in then is an F-22 fleet that we wear out faster uh, than we'd like to do it, and an F-22 fleet that we'll need to continue to upgrade over the years uh, to maintain its relevancy, uh, at least to do what it needs to do here in the Pacific. But today we perform freedom of navigation uh, uh, cruises, we perform freedom of, of navigation flights in an effort to counter what the Chinese have done in the South China Sea with regard to the islands that they have, they've established there. Um, I would also, I was just at an Arctic symposium the other day too, and it's sort of amazing that the Chinese can, de can declare themselves a near Arctic nation. Uh, we, Many of us find that puzzling, but if you look at the way they've set up the Belt and Road arrangement uh, that they've done over land through the Middle East, there's actually an element of the Belt and Road that runs through the Arctic that enters in the Bering Straits and then, of course, exits at the uh, Iceland and UK at the Iceland and UK gap. So it's not without thought, I don't think, that, that the Chinese do what they're doing. Now, it, it would appear that maybe all is lost. I'm here to tell you all is not lost. Uh, there are a number of issues that the Chinese have yet to resolve. They're, they're dealing with an aging population. They're dealing with environmental pollution. Uh, they, they advertise what I call a, a tortured form of capitalism that, frankly, very few people are buying in terms of allies. And then if you do sign up to that, uh, there are a number of strings that come attached a lot of times uh, with the help that the Chinese have to offer. And, more than one country has found themselves in a financial issue in dealing with the Chinese and have ultimately then had to sign up through this dollar diplomacy to give the Chinese access to ports and various other and sundry things uh, that have allowed them to establish footholds. But if you look at what the Chinese are doing in terms of power projection, 
uh, in building aircraft carriers, in basing people overseas, uh, the Belt and Road uh, whole of government approach to being able to influence parts of the world, you can see how they pick apart things that have been relatively long-standing alliances and relatively long-standing ways of doing business, and in this case, in the Pacific. The Philippines is a good example, and I know the Philippines ambassador was here uh, not long ago and talked about the president's visits to China. I think he's been to China three times, or he's one of the, one of the most frequent visitors uh, to China. And the Philippine ambassador was was very optimistic about what the what the Chinese or what the uh, what their president would come away from. But I would tell you uh, that the way the United States has survived, and frankly, the way you survive with the Chinese, is dealing with the Chinese from a position of strength. And I would maybe take a little bit of exception to the ambassador's uh, to the ambassador's discussion about about how the president Duarte was going to be able to to deal with the Chinese from a position of strength. But I would, I would also say that, uh, that there is some hope in the latest national defense strategy. And before he left the office, uh, the Secretary of Defense Mattis uh, published what is probably one of the most coherent national defense strategies we've had in a number of years. Uh, one of those being building a more lethal force, which is paying attention to those things that we need to pay attention to that have been countered over the years in terms of building up the forces that we need. Uh, strengthening, strengthening our alliances and attracting new partners, uh, more important than ever in the Pacific, in my opinion, and we've had a standing set of alliances in the Pacific that have stood us in good stead, I think, for the last 70 years, and uh, to let those atrophy would be a mistake. And then at the same time, uh, reforming the Department of Defense so that you actually can afford the defense that you need and we get the performance we need out of the department. Now, you're going to think I'm a little bit strange as a retired four-star general officer, but I would tell you that in my humble opinion, uh, if we can't defend this nation for $740 billion a year, then we need to rethink how we're, how we're doing national defense. And I can say that because, frankly, I was part of the problem in the Air Force budgeting process uh, when I was on active duty. But this country pours a lot of money into national defense. We just need to make it count, and I think the Pentagon is trying to do that. And one of the most uh, recent pronouncements, the brand-new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff has said that the, the level of effort in the Pacific is going to be his primary level of effort, which I think is a good thing. Uh, when we did the pivot to the Pacific back during the Obama administration, uh, there were a couple of things that I saw that potentially could have been issues. One is there were a lot of us that thought we never left the Pacific, uh, and so pivoting back there really didn't mean much to us. And the other part of that was uh, we had not, you know, once we declared the pivot to the Pacific, you didn't, there, you saw a lot of dust and smoke, but you didn't see a lot of flame in the process. Uh, I would tell you, and this wasn't because of me, but because of some of my predecessors and people that have watched the Pacific and grown up out here as officers over the years, uh, I think postured the United States Air Force very well for what we need to do in the Pacific. Uh, one was something like the C-17 coming to Elmendorf and other places in the Pacific. Uh, the F-22 to Elmendorf and into Hawaii uh, was no mistake. Uh, and the F-35 soon to follow into Eilson. So that by the end of about 2023, 2024, Literally 20 to 25% of the United States Air Force's stealth fighter fleet, our most advanced fighters, will be here in the Pacific. And that's not an accident. 
that was planned over the years. Uh, now, I would tell you that uh, the Chinese have been very good uh, in some of their areas, and they've done some very good targeting in terms of building systems to counter things like AWACS and other systems that we have online. Uh, the shortfall, I think, is they have not mastered the ability to integrate all of those systems, although I will tell you they're getting better at it, and they're certainly emphasizing joint training and those kinds of things that will make them better. Uh, the other thing that I would say we need to emphasize, for better or worse, is the young men and women sitting in this audience are the most experienced combat veterans the United States Air Force has had for years, since Vietnam, quite frankly. Uh, these young men and women have been at war for almost 20 years, when you get right down to it. They rotated all over the world, and they're a very experienced crew of folks, and the Chinese can't say that, uh, quite frankly. And I think that gives us a, a tremendous edge. I would also tell you that the United States is far away better in the area of logistics and the ability to support people around the globe uh, than the Chinese, which I think is a very, very important hedge that most of us forget about because that's not the glamorous stuff that we do every day, but it's the thing that we need to do and it's the thing that allows us to win wars. Now, with that, I would tell you that uh, the bottom line for me has remained unchanged over the last 10 years, and that's that uh, I am an optimist about our ability to deal with the Chinese, and I'm an optimist because uh, as long as we can deal with the Chinese from a position of strength, then we're going to be seen by them as capable competitors, and I think we're going to be able to keep this world in the Pacific on an even keel as we do that. But let me stop there, uh, if I may, and I'm more than happy to take questions about my ramblings here or anything else that, uh, that you might want to talk about. Uh, I can't explain much of what's going on in Washington right now, although I'd like to, uh, I, but uh, if you can help me understand it, I'd, I'd enjoy that too. But please uh, let me have your questions. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans. Today's program is 10 years later, looking back at China and the Pacific with retired Air Force General Howie Chandler. Now we'll hear questions from the audience. Uh, yeah, so I'm curious if uh, the, the success of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations has kind of demonstrated that Southeast Asian countries are willing to coalesce on economic issues, mm -hmm. not yet defense issues. So on that note, I'm wondering if you think it is possible or feasible in the future for a so-called uh, NATO of the Pacific uh, between Japan, United States, and Southeast Asian countries. Uh, the, the shorter answer is probably not. Uh, and I, will, I, I, I guess the best way to summarize that is that there is such uh, a difference between a lot of the countries militarily. Not that they can't contribute. But if we're talking about a high-end conflict, there aren't a lot of people in the Pacific that can do that. And then the ones that can do it uh, have a long, long history dating back to World War II that tend to make them not trust each other. So I would tell you that it would take, it would be, it would be a pretty dire situation that would drive the Japanese and the Koreans together in an effort to counter things. That's why the United States, frankly, is so important, because we are able to try to tie those two countries together uh, in, a, in a fashion that allows us to do the kinds of things that, that you're talking about. Uh, 
I think, you know, ASEAN has been somewhat effective, uh, but if you get into a high-end conflict, I don't see how it would be able to play the part that you're basically asking, asking it to play. I don't think it has the underpinning organization to do that either. I mean, we, we do exercise uh, with, with countries in this part of the world, uh, in, in the Pacific, in an effort to, to maintain the capability to do that should we ever have to fight. But it's not done on the level anywhere else outside the three countries that I talked about that would allow us to do that. I mean, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but it would be a, that would be a pretty steep hill to climb. Yes, sir. I'm going to be a little bit all over the place. I got a couple of things. That's okay. I was all over the place with my notes. So that's. Um, the one million Uyghurs in the camps in the West, if you could maybe give me your thoughts on that. And I'm also interested in your perspective on their use of technology, uh, specifically Dragonfly and their censorship efforts, both mainland and in Taiwan, and um, how yeah. progressing forward from there. Yeah, I, I will tell you, I, I lost track of the, the Uyghur situation, quite frankly, when I was the commander in the Pacific and we had the first group uh, that actually went to Palau, uh, if I remember correctly. So I'm sorry, but I'm not versed enough to be able to do that. Uh, and as I said, but as I said in my notes, and the, to get at the second half of your, your question, uh, the Chinese are very good about manipulating uh, some of the technology and using technology in an authoritarian society. But I'm, I'm looking for where in the world as we've developed technology that an authoritarian society was able to consistently or for the long haul keep the cap on technology. And I just don't see how they do that for the long run. Uh, and, and it goes back to sort of this tortured version of capitalism that, that they would like to have both, would like to play both sides of. I don't see how you continue to do that and then maintain the economy that you need for the billions of people that live in that country to be able to make them all uh, happy, I guess is the best word to, to use. Although I'm not sure they worry about making everyone happy. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I just don't see how they keep a lid on technology over time. In the short run, sure, it can be done. But over the long haul, uh, I'm not sure it can be. And I think you're starting to see some of that play out in Hong Kong. And we, you know, all we can do is hope that that comes out well. General, thank you for coming. Um, two questions, please. One is on Tibet. I'm sorry. When I was in Tibet, uh, it was very much a, a military-dominated uh, society. Um, and the, the people there were uh, very much, uh, uh, military was very very present there. Um, and the, uh, the Hans are basically resettling back into Tibet into Tibet. So that's one question. What do you think the future of Tibet is? And um, so that, let's just go with that one, I guess. Thanks. No, I, I, no, that's a very good question. Uh, I personally think by this point in time, and I don't know the history well, 
But if you look at uh, the Chinese claims, I guess, on Tibet, uh, the world sort of turned a blind eye back in the 50s. Uh, and the Chinese took Tibet. Uh, I think the Chinese are so deeply ingrained in Tibet that that will always be in the Chinese sphere of influence. I, I don't see another way to do that at this point. And I, I do believe that the Chinese are so concerned about this national unity issue that to let anybody spin off out of the sphere of influence would be seen by them as weakness on their part. So I don't, I don't put much faith in, an, in Tibet ever getting out of that influence as long as the Chinese are going down the road they're going now. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but geez, I'm being so negative with my answers here. I'm not sure. That... Um, General, in, a, in my visit to Vietnam earlier this year, I witnessed two, two distinct uh, strategies by the Chinese, one in Vietnam, where they seem to have the support and, and uh, attention of the ruling elite, known there as the Red Mafia, and uh, but not of the common people, and much of the infrastructure uh, is being done by the Japanese or the Koreans. Right. Next door in Cambodia, uh, it's a rather sloppy application uh, and transparent. They say they're building a resort over there, but it's a military base. Right. And so I wonder, and I didn't, and by the way, I know I'm probably not alone. I had no idea this type of stuff was going on. I was in. Vietnam right after President Trump was there. And, and I had no idea of that kind of that uh, uh, lay of the land there. Can you tell, tell me how the United States and our interests there are best protected or reinforced in those two neighboring countries? The, uh, I, I would tell you, I, I did have the opportunity to visit Vietnam. I have not been to, been to Cambodia, but saw a lot of what you saw in terms of the economics and, the, and frankly, uh, the willingness of people to work hard and produce things. Uh, the Chinese uh, have started to price themselves out of some of the labor markets, which the Vietnamese have taken advantage of in terms of, of the economy. Uh, I personally think the way to continue with Vietnam is down the economic path. And you're exactly right. Uh, I visit with the commanders of the Vietnamese Air Force. Um, they were still very tentative uh, in terms of their relationship with, with us. And I was frankly too young to fight in the Vietnam War. I was not there. They were a little older than I was and they had not forgotten. And I wouldn't necessarily expect them to. But the way I was treated, I think, was dictated a lot by the Chinese and watching what they were doing with me if that makes sense. In other words, let's not let them get too close to, to these military guys. But I think, I think based on the, again, this, this economic, this, this uh, uh, type of capitalism that the Chinese are selling, I, my personal feeling was the Vietnamese saw right through that. And they understood the limitations that went along with whatever small amount of freedom that you were given in, the, in this capitalistic world, and they knew there was a better way. Uh, and I think that's why you see things starting to open up more. I, I, think you're, I think what you saw there was exactly right. Your interpretation of that was exactly right. But let me, let me just tell you one other story. 
uh, we were able to go out to one of the POW MIA dig sites uh, when I was there. And it was about 100 kilometers out of Da Nang. And I, I used up X amount of hours in a, in a Russian-built rotary wing aircraft. I mean, you've, you've only got so many rotary wing hours allocated to you in your life. And, they, and you, you check them off at two for one when you fly in Russian equipment like that. But uh, we might as well have been 100,000 kilometers uh, from civilization. We pay the Vietnamese a lot of money uh, to be able to do what we're doing. That money does not trickle down to the guys and gals, by the way, that are out there doing the, doing the hard work. Uh, but uh, we at least have some modicum of cooperation with the Vietnamese government that allows us to continue to do that kind of thing. So those kinds of things, uh, talking about cleaning up Agent Orange, which we, we left a bit of a mess there, uh, are things that we're going to have to work our way through. Uh, but there is a foundation for a relationship in Vietnam. Yeah, 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 right. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Uh, the further north you get, uh, that view might change just a little bit. But, uh, but you're right. Down in the south, there were, down in the south, there's very much a foundation for a relationship in Vietnam. Thank you. Sir, thank you for coming and speaking. It was very insightful, certainly. Um, just a quick question. What do you see are uh, South China, the China's interest in the South China Sea and then, uh, and really their in-state, I should say. What do you see as their in-state and then why should we protect our interest in that region? Yeah, well, I mean, the in-state is to push the U.S. out, right? I mean, that, that is their, that's pretty much their stated goal in doing all this. Uh, unfortunately, we have given them uh, some tools that, are, that is going to make life difficult for us in the South China Sea if, in fact, we want to maintain the same, same level of influence. So we're going to have to decide here as we watch China rise uh, how we're going to live in a world with the Chinese in the, in the South China Sea. And what does that world want to look like for us? Uh, I don't know if we've decided if that world ought to look like it has for the last 70 years or if there has to be a place for the Chinese. The problem we run into, in, and again, this is all my opinion, is a lot of the Chinese leadership sees this as a zero-sum game, right? If we win, they lose. Uh, until we convince them or they figure out or somehow we maneuver this uh, to the point where they understand that we're both better off if we make the pie bigger uh, than we are trying to play a zero-sum game, then we're going to continue to have the issues that we have in the South China Sea. And what we need to hope for here is that we don't have some sort of miscalculation. We don't have another replay of the P3 incident where now suddenly they're more emboldened to, to do something about that because we let them build islands and we let them do other things, uh, I would tell you the Chinese are searching for where our red line is. And I think maybe we're still looking for where our red line is uh, as we do that. But I think you know, the world cannot afford for the South China Sea to explode. There's too much, there's too much of the world's economy. Uh, there are too many people. Uh, we have to prevent uh, some sort of miscalculation uh, but at the same time, we have to approach this from a position of strength. 
Uh, I look at the, as I said, I look at the national security strategy. I think that's at least from a military perspective the way the DOD needs to approach this. But the rest of uh, the all of government approach has to be a part of this too. One of the best tools we had when I was the PACAF commander was a civic action group on the island of Palau. Now this was rotated through uh, the different services. The Army, the Navy, and the Air Force all took, I think, uh, six-month stints there at the time. Uh, but they did things like build roads, build schools, build uh, medical facilities, uh, and basically help the population of Palau. The Palau government helped pay for that, and they were the ones that signed up for the program. Many other places did not, which is why we didn't have the same arrangement other places. But somehow we have to use the model that's a lot like that one, in my opinion, uh, to help places that can use that type of help. But at the same time, there are other places that have advanced beyond that where we need to find ways with the whole of government to understand the scenario and then get everybody to play. Uh, but until, until we convince the Chinese we're serious about the Pacific, then I think we're going to continue to get poked uh, at every opportunity, not to be a pessimist. I'm going to talk about a place I haven't been. In space, both China and Russia have been setting up uh, maintenance satellites. And I wonder, are we really working hard on ways to protect our satellite systems? Because we're so dependent upon it. Well, you're exactly right. And uh, John Hyten, when he became the, he was the commander of Air Force Space and then became the commander of, of uh, Strategic Command, uh, I think was the one that started trying to focus this country on the fact that space was no longer a sanctuary and that we needed to have some defensive and offensive capabilities in space. Uh, there are people that are working on those issues, uh, by the way, uh, but I think we just need to realize that space is never going to be the sanctuary that it used to be, and guys and gals that are flying fighters may or may not have G GP may or may not have GPS uh, to go drop bombs and various other and sundry things. So there's a there's an abs I mean there's a lot going on in space, uh, but you're exactly right. Uh, this country's got to spend a lot of time and effort, and and I think the focus toward a new space force. Uh, is an effort to do that. I have my own opinions about about splitting things up as opposed to integrating them uh, the way they've been. Uh, the Air Force takes a bad rap sometimes for not spending money on what they should have spent, and that you know the space space capabilities were you know fell behind pointy end airplanes and fighters and various other sundry things. I'm here to tell you that's not true. We looked at the Air Force budget and we made sure that the requisite amount of money. Uh, was going to space. Uh, what we needed uh, was was a better acquisition program, which again, John Hyten and other folks have worked on in terms of space, uh, a faster, uh, more economically sustainable way to get to space uh, and to stay in space. And then once you're there, how you protect what's there. Uh, but there's a lot of effort going into that. Uh, we may well see a separate Space Force. Got it. If that's what's going to happen, that's fine. Any time you make a change like that, you're going to create a seam somewhere. Uh, there are seams today. Don't, I mean, I'm not saying there aren't. But there are always going to be seams when you change an organization that drastically. Uh, at the same time, there's a lot of people working hard to solve those problems. 
but there is a there is a realization in the Pentagon today that there wasn't 10 years ago that we need to get serious in some of these areas. So I'm, I, I feel actually pretty good about that one. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans. Today's program is 10 years later, looking back at China and the Pacific with retired Air Force General Howie Chandler. We'll continue with questions from the audience. Good evening, General. Um, my question is, well, first the statement is, volunteerism and compassion amongst the Chinese people is on the upswing. Mm. How do you see that playing out? Well, there's a, you know, I, I would, I tell you what, it's gonna, uh, let me give you a, another example. Uh, a lot of my friends and a lot of people that I talk to talk about the number of Chinese tourists. I suspect we see that here in Alaska, uh, you know, particularly up around the Fairbanks area. Most of these young Chinese folks are exactly that. They're a lot younger. They're a different generation. Uh, they're people that have money, that are able to travel. Uh, and at the same time, we're gonna see the world and do some of the things that they otherwise wouldn't have done. Uh, I was able to go to Taiwan as well. And there was a belief in Taiwan that if they just brought enough people from the mainland into Taiwan to see you know, what capitalism really did and how free people actually lived and, and worked, that they could, they could change you know, a couple billion Chinese <laughs> into seeing things their way. I'm not sure it would work exactly like that. Uh, but at the same time, I think that helps explain some of the things that you're talking about in terms of volunteerism, uh, caring about the environment, uh, for example, and those kinds of things. And that's, you know, I, I go back to the, the example of the internet and various other sundry things. I mean, you can block that stuff for so long uh, and you can be so, so effective, but at the same time, uh, you're not gonna be able to control it forever. And I think what we're seeing is a young group of people that are finding out there's a better way to do things in, in the world. And that's gonna take a long time to solve but that goes back to this business about making the pie bigger for everybody and not seeing this competition as a zero-sum game. I think, I think we ought to be a little optimistic about, about all of that if we can. Number of Chinese folks going to school here too, by the way. Um, you would like to retain some of that capability in this country. Uh, a lot of it goes home uh, to China. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think any of those interactions are necessarily bad. Yes, thank you, General, for being, for being here tonight. My question is about uh, Taiwan. Uh, there's a presidential election coming up in January. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. And secondly, um, is there anything that Taiwan should be doing or should not be doing in the long run to uh, preserve and protect its uh, freedom and democracy? So, thank you. The, uh, I, I'm going to be real straight with you. I'm not versed on the candidates, but I can tell you that that typically when you have a separatist, can a separatist candidate, uh, things get tight in the Straits of Taiwan. Uh, when you have someone that tries to walk the fine line between separatism and, and making the mainlanders happy, then things typically go a little bit, a little bit better. Uh, again, our goal as a government ought to be to help guide them into an area where we don't have a miscalculation of some sort that causes an issue. Uh, the mainlanders would have a very, very difficult time invading Taiwan. Uh, and that's because of some of the military capabilities they have, the fact that 
you know, it's 100 miles of open ocean that isn't necessarily easy to, to get across. Uh, that said, uh, I personally don't necessarily believe that there will ever be an invasion of Taiwan. I think Taiwan could be strangled a number of different ways and, and isolated, and you've seen that occur ever since President Carter basically stepped away from the Taiwanese, and, and we then countered with, out of the Congress with the Taiwan Relations Act, which has kept us tethered to Taiwan and at the same time has allowed us to provide some capabilities. And, but I'm, I'm also pretty optimistic about, about that. Uh, if you, I, I was the Wing Commander Luke when we stood up the Taiwan F-16 squadron. Uh, great group of young men, and they, they were all young men back, back then. Uh, I went to Taiwan uh, several years later. A lot of those young majors and captains uh, had grown up to be one and two stars. Uh, in their Air Force, and when you walked into one of their fighter squadrons, it could have been a fighter squadron in this country, uh, for the most part. So I think we've done a great job on the military side of building those kinds of relationships and allowing the type of interoperability that we would need if we were ever called upon to assist the Taiwanese. There's no guarantee, by the way, that they would call on us to do that. And quite honestly, there's no guarantee we might there's no guarantee we would necessarily help them. Uh, I would tell you, uh, holding back help in a Taiwan situation where the Taiwanese were getting shot at would basically destroy a lot of our alliances in the Pacific were we to do that. Uh, but in the end, I think the, the, the Taiwans are gonna have to continue to walk a very, a very fine line here uh, to maintain the type of in independence that they're looking for and at the same time not get into the, the one China, two government type of relationship that you see in Hong Kong, which isn't playing out very well right now. I think Hong Kong is gonna provide an example for a lot of things on, on how this is good, how things will go down the road in, a, in, the, in the future. That's not a very good answer to your question, but that's, a, I'm sorry, that's the best one I have. Uh, sir, so bringing it back to the, the Diceman here, um, I think we can agree that for a long time, the U.S. has maintained the te technological and innovation edge among a lot of our adversaries and our, our peers across the world for, for decades. And But after we invaded Iraq the, the first time, um, China was stunned by the speed that we did, and we, that's when they came out with their, their plan, their white paper, and we saw that gap quickly close with their capabilities. And so my question to you, sir, particularly because we have fifth gen fighters in the room, is I know that they're not near peer or peer right now in their capabilities, uh, in all their capabilities, but do you see on the unclassified side any capabilities that they're one of those two, and, it, and of anything else, when do you think they'll reach that level of near peer or peer? Yeah, I, you know, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I can't predict, but I will tell you, as, as you say, the, the gap is closed, and it's closed to the point where we're, we're concerned about that. Uh, and let me just give you the example of hypersonics. Uh, hi hypersonic weapons uh, would be game changers like we have not seen a game changer for a long time. Uh, we need to work hard on hypersonic weapons, and I think you've seen that coming out of Washington and the 
The acquisition and technology folks understand that, and that's our number one priority. But if I were concerned, it would be about hypersonics right now. Uh, the rest of these things, uh, in terms of technology, uh, I think we're going to be able to outpace a near peer for quite, quite some time. I also put a lot of faith, and maybe it's because I was one, but I put a lot of faith in, the, in particularly the United States Air Force ability to train young men and women to do what we need them to do. Uh, when you think about it, you know, we take none, none of these guys and gals sitting around the, in the room wearing the flight suits came from the same town. Uh, they all come from all across the country. We take people uh, into our Air Force with varying degrees of capability, and within a not too uh, long a time, uh, they all talk the same, walk the same, and look the same, and are able to basically perform pretty much the same and do the job we need them to do. Uh, that's pretty hard to match uh, anywhere else in the world. So I put a lot of faith in that, but at the same time, we owe them the best capability we can give them, right? Uh, which is why uh, folks at Lockheed Martin work really hard uh, to do some of the things they do, and that's why the Chief of Staff of the Air Force uh, and uh, in the case of the Secretary of Defense are concerned that we continue to monitor, modernize uh, the force to be as lethal as we can make it, and quite frankly, stop doing some of the things that don't make the force lethal and spend time either training or buying equipment or doing the things we need to do to continue to continue to produce the force we need. So I'm pretty optimistic about our ability to maintain a technolo technological edge. It's not the same technological edge that it used to be, quite honestly, because as I said before, we've given away a lot of technology uh, that we frankly should not have. Uh, some of the Chinese airplanes look a whole lot like the F-35. Uh, and so, you know, I, bad on us. Uh, but at the same time, I think if you ask the young guys and gals that do this, they'll tell you they've got some of the best equipment in the world, if not the best equipment. But there are some areas where we need to pay attention. Hypersonics, for example, is, is one of them. Please join me in a big round of applause for our speaker, General Howie Chandler. Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. Today's program was 10 years later, looking back at China and the Pacific with retired Air Force General Howie Chandler. This program was recorded on November 14th at 49th State Brewing Company and was presented by the Alaska World Affairs Council. If you missed part of this show or want to hear more like it, you can head to the Addressing Alaskans page on alaskapublic.org. For Alaska Public Media, I'm Ammon Swenson. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.